There are two readings today. The first one is from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, and you'll find that on page 960. And then there's one verse from Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, on page 916. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of the law, heard this, and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Reading from Matthew. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the Gospel of Christ. Should we just um, pray that God would speak to each of us the message which he has on his heart to speak to our hearts and minds, so that in our lives we might become more aware of God's presence. Amen. So the computer in my study at home is broken. It won't switch on. In fact, it will switch on, but then before it gets to anything useful, it switches off again. And as much as I try all the things that I know what to do, um, it, won't, it won't boot up so that I can use it. Now, a few years ago, this would not have been a problem. Um, I'm an Apple fanatic. Um, in fact, I've probably converted more people to the cause of the Apple Mac than to Jesus, which is a bit of an issue in itself. Um, but there we are. Probably shouldn't admit to that in church. It's not true either. Um, but uh, a bit embarrassed now. Um, But um, what I would have done years ago is to take my Apple into the Apple store, in this case in Cambridge, and take it to an appropriately named genius who would either fix it or who would replace it. And that would be my computer in my study at home working again. The problem now is that my computer is out of warranty. So I no longer have a guarantee that if I take my computer into a genius in Cambridge, the genius will fix it and will or replace it and give it back to me in working order. And it got me thinking that there are the kind of guarantees which make our lives more assured, less anxious for a few years. And there are the guarantees which endure, which are so solid that we build and shape our lives around them. 
And the Beatitudes strike me as those kind of guarantees that endure. So Stuart just read to us from Matthew, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. J. John, who some of you will have come across in home groups and in books, um, is a Christian author and speaker, and he tells a helpful story to illustrate this beatitude that we're exploring today. So there were three entrepreneurs who were going for a contract in Bristol. These three entrepreneurs were all based in London. Um, The first uh, entrepreneur, when having to go to Bristol to try and secure this contract, put the wrong destination in his sat-nav and ended up driving to Birmingham. And on account of the fact that he couldn't even get to the meeting about getting the contract, he didn't get the contract. The second entrepreneur drove from London to Bristol and just on the outskirts of Bristol decided that it was all a bit too much and she didn't want to have to drive to and from uh, Bristol and London to get this contract and so she drove back to London. And so on account of the fact that she no longer wanted the contract, she didn't get the contract. The third person drove to Bristol on account of the fact that everyone else who had been tendering for the contract was no longer actually um, interested or able to secure the contract, got the contract, and because she wanted it in the first place. And the point of the story, which helps lead us into reflections on this beatitude, is it's not just about what you aim for in life, but about how you aim for it. It's not just about what you aim for in life, but about how you aim for it. And we see this with our beatitude this morning, but also many, if not all the other beatitudes. So far in our series, we've learned that it's blessed to be poor in spirit, recognising our need for God and others. And it's blessed to mourn in respect of recognising our own brokenness and sinfulness and holding that in humility before God. So we know that the what, in respect of what we are aiming for, we aim in our lives to be people who recognise our need of God, recognise our brokenness, aim to be peacemakers, practise mercy, have a clean heart, and if called, as many of our Christian brothers and sisters in the world are uh, right this very moment, if we are called to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. So we know the what. However, our beatitude this morning underlines the point that it's not just what you aim for in life, but how you aim for it, how you get to your destination. We need to aim to be a people who aim for righteousness in our lives. That point is clear from the beatitude. But Matthew 5 verse 6, which is our beatitude this morning, reveals that the how is equally vital. And it says we are to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. It occurred to me that righteousness isn't a word that is too commonly used in our time. So um, we talk a lot about wellness in society and there are many books on wellness in bookshops and um, blogs online and so on. 
And there's nothing wrong at all with pursuing wellness, but for Christians, wellness should be understood within a framework of living righteously. Otherwise, the what we are aiming for or living for in our lives becomes distorted by our own agendas. So if we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we need to say a bit about what righteousness is and what it isn't. Righteousness is about justice. God's justice by which we are made righteous. And God's concern that his people should enjoy justice. And so God's kingdom of righteousness is that which reveals itself in concern for the poor, the oppressed, the orphans and the widows. Righteousness comes from a Greek word which I'm going to not do justice to right now. But righteousness comes from the Greek word dekeonsin. Don't make me say that again. But the Greek word means true inner goodness. That's all you need to remember. That the Greek word that Matthew can't pronounce means true inner goodness. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for righteousness, sedka, is most commonly found alongside another Hebrew word, mispat, which means justice. And so we see this inextricable connection made in the Bible where righteousness is placed right next to justice. And justice is something that we'll all have a view on. Interestingly, we're likely to have different views on what justice involves. But righteousness and justice are closely aligned in the scriptures. I remember last year I asked a member of the staff team, um, and I won't say who this is, but... um, I was, I was amazed by their ability to remain calm constantly and to smile. And so I asked them on one occasion, what makes you angry? And this member of staff thought for a good few moments and, and, then, and then said, injustice makes me angry. When people are taken advantage of, I get angry. And I think that's something that we can identify with, isn't it? You know, um, we say things like, especially as parents, you can do whatever you like to me, but don't say anything about my child. Um, And similar things, you know. And so when we see the events in Manchester, we all feel connected to that because we feel, and rightly so, that a gross injustice has been perpetuated um, uh, against, against a people. And so we feel connected into people's grief and we feel connected in um, to the injustice that people who are directly involved in a loss of life and an injury um, and in anxiety around that incident have experienced. We feel the injustice that others have suffered. So as we attempt to embody righteousness in our lives, some words about what hungering for righteousness is not about. Firstly, it's not about preaching at people, being judgmental, or believing ourselves to be morally superior. It's not about preaching at people, being judgmental, or believing ourselves to be morally superior. Remember that righteousness as justice is about God's concern for people and his desire that they might know God. It's a privilege to share God. Um, to share the good news of Jesus with others. But it's definitely a with and not an at. Secondly, it's not about pursuing our own righteousness 
It's not about solely pursuing our own righteousness, sorry. It's not about solely pursuing our own righteousness. We are called to have a concern for others and for our society. And thirdly, it's not solely a social agenda for change. Although part of God's kingdom breaking into our reality is the freeing of people from homelessness, benefit sanctions, discrimination, inequitable employment practices... Righteousness is also about how we live in good relationship with God as his children. So those are three things that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not about. And so some things that it is about. Firstly, it's about a desire for God's will. As the driving ambition in our lives, as the what, we are to set righteousness and living for God at the forefront of our lives. Lord, let your will influence my choices, the way I treat other people. And if righteousness or pursuing God's will is not the what we live for, then we stand no chance of getting there. If you um, were that second entrepreneur, oh no, the first one, who set the destination for Birmingham, you're not going to get anywhere near Bristol. And if we don't set a destination at all in our lives, then we'll just meander through various side streets and um, detours and find ourselves nowhere, um, nowhere determinate. And so if we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we need to set a destination in our lives. The most important thing we're going to do with our lives, the thing that's going to frame our choices, our words, our actions, is that we're pursuing righteousness. We're pursuing God's will. Secondly, um, good ordering of our lives. And good ordering of our lives according to what we know of Christ's teaching. And we find some great teaching in this section which we're starting to look at, Matthew chapter 5. And actually, we're, we're doing an entire series which runs for months um, uh, on just the Beatitudes at the start of Matthew 5 alone. But Matthew chapters 5 and 6, and I think into 7, focus on the Sermon on the Mount, where there's teaching on moral living, what it is to live a, a godly and kingdom life. So we are to order our lives well. And, and it just occurs to me to say, and I need to be careful, I don't go off track too much, it just occurs to me to say that God knows you as individuals and so how you order your lives well will be different. I'm a very routine-based person. Um, this causes a bit of a joke um, in our marriage, but I, I like my routines consistent and so I have patterns of prayer and ways of approaching situations that are largely unchanging. Um, some of you will be people who can't stand routine. And like the uncertainty and, as I would say, chaos. Um, And actually recognising who you are as something um, with enormous worth and as, you know, recognising who you are that you were created to be that way is important in understanding what a good ordering of your life looks like so that you may pursue righteousness. Um, So don't try and emulate others Try and understand who you were created by God as and, and what works for you in trying to live the Christian life. I hope that makes sense. Back onto my notes. Um, thirdly, 
we're called to share in God's concern for the world. And as we'll see in a bit when I turn to Isaiah, one of the things that the scriptures constantly has, in fact, one of the greatest narratives of scripture is God's concern for the poor. One of the things that you will find throughout the whole of the Bible um, is God's concern for the poor and the oppressed. There are, there are hardly any other themes which have such dominance in scripture than that. So we are to have a concern for the world around us. Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk um, who wrote these words that I think capture something for us. He said these words, I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. I believe the desire to please you does in fact please you. I was delighted to find that quote because it, um, it was cited in the West Wing, which is a series um, that was on a few years ago that I absolutely loved um, and couldn't get enough of. And uh, I think it was um, Leo McGarry who played the role of Chief of Staff to the United States President, who was played by Martin Sheen. Uh, and in one episode, um, Leo McGarry um, had to advise the President to take some military action against a rogue um, uh, dictator, and he comes out with this quote, um, I believe the desire to please you does in fact please you, and for years and years and years, I have not been able to place that quote. And then in preparing for this talk this week, I came across the writings of Thomas Merton, and there it is, I believe the desire to please you does in fact please you. Merton picks up on something profound this beatitude is not about knowledge, but about the heart, about the deepest desires and longings we have in our lives. We are not called just to know about righteousness, but to desire it. And hunger and thirst, which are the how in our beatitude, are experienced as a deep longing. They are some of the uh, most physical longings we can have when we, when we hunger and when we first, they are all-consuming longings and emotions. And it's one of those things that takes me back. I remember as a child, um, I, I'd had a consultation at um, one of the hospitals in Cardiff, and we were living about half an hour away, and uh, my mother and I hadn't had anything to eat all morning, and then we left the consultation, and we'd missed um, lunch, and we were driving back, and I just remember being completely hungry um, and not able to think about anything else. It was such a strong um, experience. When Jesus spoke the words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he was looking back to the justice spoken of by the prophets in the Old Testament, prophets such as Isaiah and Isaiah's description of justice, which appears several times in his prophecies, um, was articulate and it was specific. It unpacks not just what justice is, but also what it looks like. So in Isaiah chapter 42 and the first four verses of Isaiah 42, we read these words. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the nations. 
He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Isn't that a great prayer to pray in this season of thy kingdom come, where we pray for those who don't know God? There's that last line, verse 4. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Perhaps you want to take that away as a prayer that this island might know and put their trust and hope in Christ's teaching. But notice the character of the justice we are to model in these words. In verse 3 we read, a bruised reed he will not break. Notice the gentleness of justice here. The gentleness of justice. The bruised reed he will not break. Then contrast that with the strength of statement that we find in verse uh, 3 and 4 where it says, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In our service of others, we are to be gentle. In our challenging of the injustice we see in nations around the world, including our own, we are to be bold. And as you might have seen in the press and in your newspapers and online, um, The church leaders who have spoken out about what's happened in Manchester have been bold in their speech, in condemning what happened and in challenging um, the mindset of those who would commit such atrocities. So Isaiah tells us what justice looks like. And if we are to embody God's justice, God's righteousness, if we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think it starts with prayer. Because prayer is that space where we listen to God and we invite God to change our hearts and minds. Prayer is that space where we pray the words of Scripture, where we've been said at a much deeper level than just reading um, them alone. We cannot be a people who uh, hunger and thirst for God's justice if we're not inviting ourselves to be open to the concerns of God expressed in that two-way relationship of prayer. So prayer is the foundation of knowing what it is to have God's concern for righteousness, God's concern for justice. And then we're to allow our lives to be framed and shaped. So in a practical way, understanding what God's justice looks like through the prophecies of Isaiah We are to allow our decision-making, our choices, our words to be framed by the character of justice we see in the scriptures. I have a short meditation um, to finish these words. So if you want to be still as we pray and reflect together. Reflect on these words. Where is God calling us to discern and choose his way? Where on earth 
should we pray for the coming of his kingdom of justice and mercy? What part might we be called to play in the coming of that kingdom? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. O God, who set before us the great hope that your kingdom shall come on earth and taught us to pray for its coming, give us grace to discern the signs of its dawning and to work for the perfect day when the whole world shall reflect your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.